This is a Glass Box Media Podcast. This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. I'm Carolyn Mason, and I want to thank Crossface for allowing me to take over their feed for a few minutes so I can introduce my show, a three-episode limited series called Bigger Fish to Fry. Bigger Fish to Fry is now part of the Crossface Media Network, and the following is a sample of my first episode in the trailer. If you enjoy what you hear and want more, please head over to Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your shows, and follow, listen, and rate. Thanks again for listening. Hello and welcome to Bigger Fish to Fry, a podcast that explores the health and diet of enslaved people in the antebellum South. We'll be focusing on how enslaved people cooked for themselves as well as how what they ate was reflected in their health. I'm your host, Carolyn Mason, and I'm so excited to share this project with you. It's been a real labor of love to not only do the research that supports this show, but also to reach out to experts, obtain equipment, and then to actually do the recording. Each episode of this series will discuss an important aspect of the broader subject of enslaved foodways and their effect on enslaved people. Food history, nutrition, and the legacy of these topics for modern populations are all subjects we're going to cover over the course of this series. These episodes are by no means comprehensive, but I hope that they'll give you just a taste of the research and information that is available about the diet, health, and legacy of enslaved people. You can find more info and links to documents and studies I will rely on throughout the series on my website, Bigger Fish to Fry Podcast. Before we begin, I want to discuss a few things about this subject and how I will be addressing it. My purpose is to create something that illuminates what the lives of enslaved people were like. Their lives were important and complex, and when analyzing history, we should reflect and celebrate that. We should also make the research accessible to descendant populations who often don't have their history discussed in public settings. History about enslavement does not have to be a completely somber retelling of the horrors of that period. Instead, we can celebrate the lives that these people carved out for themselves and the culture that they were able to create under such harsh conditions. One last comment I want to make before we get into the grit of today's topic is that the subject of this podcast is enslaved people, not slaves. Slavery was a condition that these people were forced to live under, but it did not and does not define them as people. Calling someone a slave makes that their identity and the center of what was relevant about them. In contrast, enslaved as an adjective describes the condition of a person rather than the condition that defines them. It was a professor of mine, Keith Clark, who first broke down the distinction in names to me and impressed upon me the importance of what we call people and the impact a name has on how we perceive others. I will make every effort to not dehumanize enslaved people further by referring to them as slaves. Now let's get into it. Today's episode focuses on the food history of enslaved people meaning what they ate, how they ate it, and why. Tracing the food history of black people in the United States obviously starts with a trip back to Africa. 
Although Africa is today known as a quote-unquote hungry continent, meaning a place where people starve or depend completely on other countries outside of Africa for food or help, this point of view is in stark contrast to the rich biodiversity present in the edible plants and animals that developed on this continent. Some examples of these edible foods include black-eyed peas, which are also known as cow peas, rice, yams, which are distinct from sweet potatoes, and millet. To reach the United States, these foods were brought along similar routes as enslaved people themselves. On the Middle Passage, the horrific journey that brought enslaved people from Africa to what is now the United States, food was brought on slave ships to maintain human cargo. Captains had to ensure that they carried enough food for both the enslaved people as well as their crewmen, while balancing cost. The food that was kept for the enslaved people varied, but it was often of lower quality and of African origin, such as rice, millet, or any other foods mentioned previously. The reasoning behind this was the idea that people subsist better on foods that they are used to, a concept discussed in more depth in In the Shadow of Slavery, Africa's Botanical Legacy in the Atlantic World by Judith Carney and Richard Rosamoff. This concept was also one of the reasons that food for the captain and crew often came from their home countries and was separated from that of the enslaved people. The food that traveled on the slave ships and across the Middle Passage often takes on a mythic quality in African-American folklore today. In my own household and in stories from my extended family, we often reference the ingenuity of our ancestors, the African people brought over under brutal conditions, and how they too affected the foods being brought to the Americas. While this may not be true of all foods that made the journey from Africa to the New World, like the African squashes brought over, for example, there is no doubt that it was the African people who made these foods grow and thrive in this new environment. So what were enslaved people eating when they originally arrived and settled in the New World? Rice was an abundant crop and something that enslaved people were familiar with growing, preparing, and eating in Africa. Because of its versatility, it was brought over and cultivated in the Americas as a cash crop. It was particularly popular as a way to make money by cultivating the several varieties of rice available. A particularly well-cited advertisement from the 1780s mentions how rice was related to some of the qualities that were of high value in buying and selling enslaved people. In this specific advertisement, African people were brought over from the, quote, Windward and Rice Coast and then sold in Ashley Ferry, South Carolina. This area, also known as the Low Country, is home to the Gullah Geechee culture, descendants of Africans who were enslaved on rice and cotton plantations up the lower Atlantic coast. These Africans were often brought from West Africa for their expertise in growing these cash crops. The concentration of enslaved people from similar areas allowed for a unique and vibrant culture to grow in this area a culture which continues to flourish today. On the Bigger Fish to Fry website, you can find links to websites discussing modern Gullah Geechee culture, including their language, cultural practices, and food history, if you want to learn more. In places where rice was grown, like the low country of South Carolina, it was often provided by planters to enslaved individuals as a part of their food rations. Although plantation records suggest that this was an adequate ration to give someone every week for their whole life, make no mistake, the rice or even cornmeal that enslaved people were receiving was not an indicator of care or quality being taken in the rations given to enslaved people. Enslaved people had to work to supplement their diets, including interacting with the people who originally occupied the land they were now living on. I spoke with Dr. Gilmer about the interaction between enslaved people and the native people living in close proximity to plantations to learn more about how enslaved people were influenced by indigenous foodways and vice versa. And in part here, I guess there's a couple of different kinds of, of, of history, you know, as you've alluded to, um, you know, there, there's kind of folk history or like history that's being passed down in families. Um, and then there's also sort of like a scholarly history. Um, and the scholarly side of that, I can probably speak to a little bit more directly. 
Uh, and as I was saying earlier, it, it's in many ways, I think it's been kind of a romanticized notion of, of, of how, how many of these interactions occurred. Typically, it's depicted as being a collaboration, you know, of peoples who are both uh, marginalized, who are being oppressed by uh, kind of, you know, dominant European or Euro-American, um, you know, society. And there's definitely some of that going on. In New England, you had cases where there was a period in the late 1700s, early 1800s, where you have Native American societies that are increasingly kind of sort of surrounded by, by Euro-American settlements. Many Native American men were involved in the whaling industry, which was really big in New England at the time. And so, you know, it, it offered a chance for people to get good wages, but it also meant that you're typically gone for maybe two years at a time. Maybe you come back and stay, but in a lot of cases, maybe you drop in and then leave again. And so you had... Um, like lots of Native American men who are gone, but more Native American women who are staying behind. And then also there tended to be a higher prevalence of, you know, African-American men who are being kept as slaves and basically in colonial New England. And so one of the theories is that you have a lot of intermarriage there between African-American men and Native American women in part, because again, both groups are are sort of are being ostracized by, you know, white, Euro-American uh, society there. And so are kind of finding common cause with each other. And, you know, in other places in the South, uh, the Seminole are probably one of the, the main examples of this, where you had a Native American nation that was very accepting, at least at, at certain times, to, um, to incorporating runaway slaves and to, into their nation. And so again, there's, there definitely is a real history of that. Um, I know in my family, so my my grandmother was born in Southport, North Carolina, and like they there they, from what I've heard, that the family owned a lot of land, and that it was enslaved people, but also it was Native American people who once owned the land, and that there was like a a mixing and like a a lot of contribution with, like between the two of them. So I think like this topic is super interesting to see like like I have an oral history of that, but what uh-huh. like what does the historical record say? Each episode of this series will discuss an important aspect of the broader subject of enslaved foodways and their effect on people, including food history. Although black cooking in America is now known for its flavor and heavy use of seasonings, these parts of diet and cooking were also subject to the limitations enslaved people had with materials and time. Nutrition. Enslaved people were able to supplement their diets of meat and cornmeal by foraging and hunting off the plantation. But was this diet good enough to sustain them through the backbreaking labor they were often required to do? And finally, the legacy of these topics on modern populations. At the end of slavery, the influence that black cooks had over Southern recipes was largely erased by the historical record. Check out Bigger Fish to Fry on biggerfishtofrypodcast.com and streaming services like Spotify and Apple Music. Hope to see you there! This is a Glass Box Media Podcast.